Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Hello, genies, and welcome to America's family history show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And we've got some great guests today. One of them is Julie Shiblitsky. And uh, Julie is a researcher. She digs down in the dirt and she's come up with a way to get DNA from clay tobacco pipes that go way back. And it's a fascinating conversation we're going to have with her about what she has learned from some of the people who use these pipes centuries ago. That's coming up in about nine or ten minutes. Later in the show, we're going to talk to Maria from Team Red on BYU-TV's Relative Race. Wow, what an experience she had last weekend. And we're going to tell you a little about what her experience has been like on the show. And just a reminder, if you haven't signed up for our weekly Genie newsletter yet, you can do so on our website, ExtremeGenes.com, and also through our Facebook page. But right now, it is time to talk to my good friend, Lisa Louise Cook. She is a pioneer podcaster with her Genealogy Gems podcast, and she's filling in for David this week, who's off on the road. And Lisa, I'm thrilled that you agreed to come on and do this with us. Hey, Fisher, it's great to be here. I don't have quite as low a voice as David, but I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need one. Don't worry about that. We're doing our family histoire news, and I think the, the one thing we want to start with here is a story out of Harvard where a woman is actually suing the university because they took photographs of a slave and his daughter, I believe it was, back in 1850. It had a lot to do with racial science at the time, and it was an ugly situation. And it happens to be that these are ancestors ancestors of this particular woman. And so she's saying, look, these should be our family pictures. And we also have damages coming to us because of what happened to our ancestors. So it's going to be an interesting case moving forward. Well, it really is, because as you can imagine, when you look at a family tree, there are probably many, many descendants of these people. And uh, it really opens up a whole other set of questions. When it gets into, in a sense, who owns family history, who owns photographs. Right. Yeah, you got legal questions, ethical questions, moral questions. And certainly this case, I mean, a $10 million case is going to get a lot of attention, especially with an institution such as Harvard. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Harvard isn't the only Ivy League school who had their paths crossed with slavery, certainly Brown University and others. So it really brings up a whole other set of questions. And Certainly the dollar figure that she has on the case is going to bring a lot of attention. Absolutely. So I have a bit of news for you, Fisher, that uh, I came across this last week. Um, It's really a reminder that as family historians, we definitely need to take charge of our genealogical data. Now, do you remember MySpace? Yeah. Were my, you ever on MySpace? My kids were on it. I wasn't. I might have had an account. I mean, it's a long time ago. Aren't we talking about 12, 13, 14 years ago at this point? Oh, yeah. Seems like ancient history, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. I <laughs> mean, you know, they were the thing. Yeah, they were this social media platform, certainly before Facebook. They weren't just the biggest social media website. They were the number one website on the web in mm-hmm. terms of traffic. So that's how big they are. And of course, this is before kind of Facebook took over the world. But Last week, Mashable.com, they reported that MySpace lost millions of songs, photographs, videos that their users had uploaded. This was all the uploads prior to 2015. So they lost all of this data 
during a data migration. And they say publicly that they don't think there's any chance of recovery. Wow. Wow. So, and you think you about know, the sites we're relying on right now to maintain our stuff. What might happen five years from now, 10 or 20? It, it is a, a frightening reminder. You're right. It's kind of a painful reminder that we really can't put all of our genealogy eggs in one basket, right? We've got to think about what we're going to have on our own computer, what we're going to have on websites, and maybe what we even have in cloud backup and archival storage. Exactly. I'm kind of a tech geek. You know that. Yes. I, you know, I love these tech stories. You're the and best. And I really can see, well, you can see the application and, and how technology is intersecting with our lives. Well, the 9 to 5 Google blog just reported that according to a study, this was done by What's New in Publishing, YouTube.com, which of course is owned by Google, their content accounts for 37% of global downstream mobile web traffic. Wow. This is huge. Yeah. I mean, when you think of the number of websites out there, that 37% of traffic is going to and from YouTube. That's huge. And that brings up a question. Do you use YouTube for family history? I mean, do you get on there very often and check out genealogy? You know, I have found genealogy on there. I found a video of my father from 1936 in a big band, and it was the biggest shocking find of my life. Who knew? Isn't that the coolest thing? Well, and that's what's happening is people have been digitizing their photographs. They're getting those online for the last decade or so, but really it's home movies. It's all the old newsreels that were shown yes. um, before movies in the theaters. All of this. I actually found an interview from around 1928 with a 100-year-old woman, and then I tracked down a descendant and sent them the link, and they couldn't believe it. They were just shocked. There's a lot of stuff out there. You're right. Oh, that's fantastic. So, Lisa Louise, I want to catch up, though, with you on what's going on with Genealogy Gems. What's the latest? Well, we are going as strong as ever, busy both putting out the, the podcast, the free show, which we have an app. I don't know if you were aware of that. We have a Genealogy Gems app in your app store, and and really, it was the smartphone that made podcasting so easy to access these days. So we've been reaching lots of people that way. I'm still very busy over at the YouTube channel. And the other thing is I, I travel. So yeah. there's a lot of traveling. And, yeah. You Makes know, a big difference, doesn't it? And it does. And it's a great place to pick up wonderful interviews with other genealogists. So all of it's keeping me very, very busy. Yes, absolutely. And I really appreciate your taking the time to do this. I know David appreciates it. You know, he didn't know what oh, would wow. happen. But here you are. <laughs> so thank you so much, Lisa Louise Cook from Genealogy Gems. And we'll talk to you again soon, my friend. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. And coming up next, I'm going to talk with Julie Shablitsky. She's made an interesting discovery about clay tobacco pipes. And it wasn't long ago I was reading an article in The Atlantic about a fascinating study of old clay tobacco pipes that have been found, of course, all over the place, dating back to the 17th century and the 18th century and the 19th century. And because they're porous... They actually maintained a lot of the saliva that wound up in them, and now they're getting tested. And one of the people who is testing that is my next guest. She is Julie Shablitsky. She's an Oregon native. Where are you living now, Julie? Where are you working? I'm in Maryland now. Okay. And the ground's getting softer, and the weather's getting a little bit warmer, and I bet you're just finding more and more stuff. Yeah, well, usually we're in the lab um, working hard during the winter and the cold months. And then once it stops raining in May, you, you see us blossoming out of our labs and into the field. <laughs> you mentioned in the story in The Atlantic about these clay pipes, and you actually wound up on a, a former slave plantation. Tell us about that experience. 
Yeah, it was interesting. We were trying to look at the different archaeology and historic sites along General's Highway, just outside of Annapolis in Anne Arundel County, Maryland. And when we're looking there, we noticed that there was a large 18th century building, a manor house. That is where uh, Francis Scott Key's uh, great-grandparents had lived and built that place. Well, when we started excavating around it, we were hoping to find evidence of their history as well as Rochambeau, the French commander right. that um, yeah, was part of the American Revolution. And unfortunately, we didn't find any evidence of Rochambeau or his men and, and women in their camp. But what we did find was kind of exciting. We ended up finding the outline of a stone foundation. And at first, a 32-foot by 32-foot stone foundation was interesting. We didn't know if it was part of the larger plantation, like one of the planters' families, that they live there. It seemed very robust. It wasn't your typical slave cabin you'd think of when you think of the 18th and 19th century. And so we did some research and found that, lo and behold, this measurement of this stone foundation was actually part of uh, an old slave quarter that was built sometime time in the late 18th century, and then during emancipation 1864 here in Maryland, it was abandoned. So I knew that there was the potential for not only finding artifacts associated with people who were enslaved on this plantation, but that there would also be the potential to find objects that would have been exposed to bodily fluids that in turn have DNA. Wow. And so you found these clay pipes, and I know that they're all over the place, aren't they? I have a friend of mine who was in London last year, and he mentioned going down to the Thames, and I guess they're just constantly washing up on the shore there. I mean, these things were so common in previous centuries, and I guess they were here, too. Yeah, I mean, even think of cigarette butts today on the beach. I mean, they're everywhere. People love their smokes, and they love their smoking their tobacco pipes 200 years ago. And so back then, it was a little bit different because you would have a pipe. It was made out of clay. They were mass-produced, and everyone would partake. It was the kind of the thing to do. And so whenever you're at a place where someone had lived for years, whether it's an um, industrial site where they were, there was a mill and you had you know men working, or perhaps you were in a, in a home of some type, outside and inside, and you could find and run across these broken clay tobacco pipes. I noticed your comment in there that it's hard not to find them in the course of your research and your digs. Absolutely. These, these clay pipes are everywhere, and uh, when you find them, they're not whole, always whole. They're usually like in, in you know, one or two-inch pieces, especially mm-hmm. the stems that easily broke once they dropped and hit a brick floor or stone. So those you do find quite often, and if you're digging on a site and you find one, it's exciting, but it's not uncommon whatsoever. Sure. Is it usually in the stem that the DNA is located or the saliva was kept in that porous yeah. material? That's right. And since we only find one or two inch segments at a time, what we want to try and look at is we look to see if we have the piece that went to someone's mouth. Not all the time, but sometimes the the end of that pipe stem will be narrow. And sometimes, if you look closely, you can see where teeth marks are kind of grooved around the actual stem itself. So when you look closely, you can see where someone had, had held it in the mouth. It might be smooth. It might have indentions around it. And the one that we found DNA on absolutely had this indentation. Now, you mentioned earlier that they kind of passed it around. These things weren't necessarily just unique to one person. They could have been shared by many, right? 
Absolutely. Hygiene isn't what it is today. Back then, <laughs> you shared your pipe and you also shared your toothbrush. It wasn't, Ugh. it wasn't, yeah, I know, gross. But it, it just wasn't uncommon for it to happen. I mean, so yeah, I mean, you could potentially have a couple different people's DNA on one, whether it was a syringe, whether it was a pipe stem, or whether it was a, a toothbrush. So is this common then to find more than one DNA profile on a clay pipe? Well, I dabbled with DNA on artifacts back in 2004, and I looked at a syringe. Back then, glass syringes during the 1870s would have had copper alloy needle that you would change out, much like if you've ever had a razor and you've changed razor blades from it. It's the same type of thing. You just kind of swap out the sharp needle point. And I did the same thing back then, but DNA analysis 10, 15 years ago only could give us whether or not I had a man or woman, perhaps multiple profile people on it. And it could also sometimes tell me if I had a rare allele variant. Um, sometimes that rare allele variant was more common in specific ancestral groups like Africans. So I have dabbled in this before, but to be able to find where people are coming from in the yeah. world down to the, the community, like the Mende of Sierra Leone, I mean, that's, that's where you can really say something important that's different today. Now, that was one of these pipes. You found like four of them, right? As I recall, you went and actually found the DNA profile on just one of the four, and it was a partial, and then you had to work with another lab that works with those. How did right. that go? Well, I anticipated finding these pipe stems. When I was digging, I made sure that I was digging slow enough and that when I saw one of these bright white pipe stems sticking out of the soil that I kind of stopped. I went ahead and grabbed and I gloved up like I was going to surgery and I would take it out slowly out of the ground, map where it's coming from, and then I wasn't going to send them in right away, but I didn't want them to condense and have the DNA break down anymore. So I went ahead and I threw them in my freezer at home to stop any further degradation. <laughs> I mean, who knew that these ancestors of somebody's was out there actually doing uh, DNA kits, right? I mean, just spit in a cup, except in this case, it was just a clay pipe. You send these things in and... And then you did the DNA profile, and what did you learn from that one? Well, I sent them to Dr. Rippin Molly at the University of Illinois. I said, listen, I've got these tobacco pipes. I want to see if we can find some human DNA on them. And he was dubious. But he said he agreed that he would try. He had a grad student, Kelsey Witten, so I sent them to Rippin. Months went by, and all of a sudden I got an email back, and he said out of the four pipe stems that I sent in, two of them did have DNA on them that survived, and one of them had enough that he thinks that we could possibly get an ancestry from it. And that's when he <laughs> talked to his friend in Copenhagen and said, listen, can you go ahead and look at this profile and let me know where in the world, who they're most closely related to. So that's when it kind of all kicked off. And again, more months went by. And then we start getting this information coming in and we're all kind of shocked and we're excited. And that's when we got together and, and did um, co-author that paper that recently came out. And now you're seeing that the person who used that pipe was potentially from Sierra Leone or their ancestry was. That's unbelievable. Yes. So it yeah, certainly thing, kind of validates yeah. that it was a slave. Well, it doesn't validate it was a slave. What it does tell me is that the context from where it came from does say that. But whenever you look at a pipe stem, you can only say that this person was of African ancestry or was mm -hmm. you know, most closely genetically related to the Mende of Sierra Leone of West Africa in this case. It doesn't say she was enslaved. 
it does just tell me that, that that's what her ancestry was. Sure. But if you take that smoking pipe stem, if you will, and you link it to a place where there were slaves living, and we have both archaeological material as well as the archives that state that there was a slave quarter at that location, all those multiple lines of evidence do state that this person was likely enslaved. That's just incredible. And and you're finding more and more things like this, people who are in the same field as yourself, things like tar and things that people chewed on anciently that are leaving their DNA in there. So it's not just bones anymore that can kind of give you this experience. Yeah, exactly. You can begin to ask different questions, and you also have a different sort of database or group of items to begin to talk about. So we don't have to go to a cemetery. We don't have to rely on looking at uh, people's ancestors for these sorts of answers. We can maybe begin to look at these inanimate objects, these false teeth, tobacco pipe stems, you know, objects that came into contact with blood, saliva, or any other body fluids that have DNA, and begin to extract that data from, from those. It's less invasive. It's um, less personal in some ways. And so it does give us another set of information to work with. Boy, what an incredibly fun thing to do. And uh, we look forward to seeing how this expands. You know, it would be interesting if you're able to actually tie this clay pipe to someone living today as as a descendant or relative of the person who smoked it back in the 1800s. Well, that was the first reason I looked at this. We had a known descendant community who was there, who was with us on these discoveries. They were descended for the people who were enslaved there at Belvoir. And they were hoping, you know, how do I tie myself personally to this space and time? So that was really the reason behind doing this and looking at the DNA. But unfortunately, the DNA, once it comes out of the body, it begins to degrade very quickly, whether it's from heat or sunlight or just the wet and the dry and the wet and dry of an object or whether it's human skeletal remains. And once you get that degradation, you stop being able to have the flexibility and getting um, and being able to trace that and match it back to a living descendant. But instead, we kind of we had to walk away with a consolation prize, which was the sex of the user. She was a woman and that she was most closely genetically related to the Mendy of Sierra Leone, West Africa. And we were happy with that because it did give us something that we didn't have before. And it also showed other colleagues the potential of what we can do with not just our site and at Belvoir, but what people begin to, can begin to do across the nation and really across the world with, with artifacts. Wow. She's Julie Shablitsky. She is an archaeologist with the Maryland State Highway Administration. Julie, thanks so much for your time and uh, sharing with us this exciting stuff that one day could tie into the genealogy community. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. My next guest, who we have all come to know from Dancing with the Stars, and it was quite a kick to sit down and visit with Derek Huff. And, And you may wonder, why was Derek Huff there talking about family? Well, here's the gist of it. Look who I've got next to me here. Yes. Hi. It's the big brother of Julianne Huff. That's it. <laughs> that is my title. Indeed it is. Yes. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Nice to see you, Derek. Nice to see you. And, and also, I might say, the younger brother of three older phenomenal sisters as oh, we well. We don't know them. I, well, we don't know them. I'm the only boy, four girls. <laughs> I became a dancer. Who would have thought? Exactly. Well, two, <laughs> two Emmys. Yeah. Six, what is it, the Golden Ball? Yeah. I mean... I mean the, the mirror ball trophies, the mirror yeah. Ball, yeah. But yeah, they're gold in my eyes, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, I was just looking at your history. I mean, you spent, what, 10 years in London? Yes. And then came right over here and started doing Dancing with the Stars. I did, I did, yes. Um, well, you know, long story short, I, you know, I'm from Utah. Yep. I'm, I'm from here, and it's a beautiful state. I love it here. It's my, my hometown. You know, I danced in Orem at a place called Center Stage. Got into it there. Didn't want to go dance, by the way. <laughs> Didn't want to go. 
I was like, this is dumb. This is for girls. And oh my gosh, <laughs> kicking, screaming. My mom made me go. And I'm thank, thank you, mom, for making me go. Um, and fell in love with it. And then had the opportunity to move to England and, and train and become wow. a world champion and do West End and musical theater. And, uh, and then eventually getting the uh, opportunity to come to uh, do television in America. So. It's been an amazing ride, I have to say. I mean, I mean, you're very young still. I mean, you've got to look back at it and just go, wow. It's, it's wild. You know, sometimes I, you forget, you know, you, you're kind of wrapped up in what's next in the future. Sure. Right? You're kind of wrapped up like, okay, where am I going? What's next? And sometimes it's nice to pause and be like, where, where did I come from? What's this journey been like? And connect the dots sure. and think and how much grace was involved in that journey. And if one of those things would have been different, then things might have been Everything different Everything would have been different. So yeah. it's, it's extraordinary. And speaking of dance, my whole genealogy, my whole family history, yeah. dancing is such a huge part. Really? Huge. Go back. Tell us about some of your people. Uh, my people. <laughs> well, I, I tell you what, I, I don't know the specifics, and my, my dad certainly does. Um, but I will say, just be general with it, that my grandma and grandpa, they danced together. Really? It was a ballroom thing? Uh, yes, they okay. were dancing together. And then my mom's parents, they had a dance studio as well at one oh, point. Oh, wow. But more importantly, my, my mother and father met dancing at Rick's College. And it was because of, I mean, they met dancing. So if literally, if it wasn't for dance, I literally would not be here. I owe my life literally to dancing. So culture certainly has played literally into your whole DNA. It certainly is. Okay. Yeah. And then it continued on down. and. You know, when you, when you think about that, and that's why you're here, of course, talking yeah. about the culture of family, and certainly international culture is involved in this, and song, yeah. and dance. You are a singer, too. I, yeah, I heard yeah. you humming as we were warming up here. Uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> yes, I, I sing. It's all part of it, you know, for me. I play, sure. you know, I play drums, uh, uh, guitar, and piano as well. And, um, yeah, just, just creating, being creative is so important to me and it's something that I feel most like myself when I'm creating something and it doesn't necessarily have to be in the arts you know it could be in of course in any shape or form um, but I feel like that that's such a it's such a gift that we've all been given is, is being creative and uh, I think that when we tap to that we we connect ourselves to something greater yeah. do you have an awareness of your family tree have you um, ever played with it I, I tell you what this is a true story so the, <laughs> at the uh, Grammys the other night um, Kelsey Grammer came up to me, and he goes, stop, he goes, Derek, he's like, we're related. <laughs> and so I'm, I, he's like, I did my family tree, and there, you're, there you were, Wow. the Huff family. Um, so we're like long lost cousin, cousin, cousin. <laughs> Had so, you known him a long time? No, I've never met Does him before. Does this change anything? Uh, just the fact that I'm related <laughs> to Frasier, I guess. That's pretty, you know, hey, that's Which you cool. grew up watching. You yeah, know? yeah, I mean, that's exactly. That's got to be yeah. amazingly fun. So uh, do you have a family historian in your group? Has there been one person who shared stories with you through the years? Well, actually, so you obviously knew about your grandparents and all this. Yes. Um, well, my, grand, my uh, grandma and grandpa, Huff, on my dad's side, they actually, I want to say they served a mission, you know, two years in Salt Lake City, and one of their main roles was working in the genealogy center. Um, so yeah, so every time I see, you know, my grandma, uh, it's always uh, so your third cousin or your this, <laughs> and she's sharing with me like all this information. Of course, I, I I'm, I'm I'm trying to follow, of course. Yeah, right. Um, and also po polish, you know, old memories of hers and uh, things, which is very important as well, because I think that. You know, we kind of focus on what's kind of bad, right? Or we have, unfortunately, in this sure. sort of day and age. You know, there's a lot of focus in that, and 
you know, what's bad is always available, but so is what's good. It's always available. And especially when we look back in our past, and, you know, we, we tend to sort of focus on maybe not so great things. Sure. But I think it's very important to polish those good memories, you know, to edit, to, 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 to edit and not to forget those great moments. So, yeah. Have you found that, you know, your life has accelerated to a pace, obviously, that few people would ever experience? I mean, all over the world and the demands on your time. And I would imagine just trying to eat at a restaurant. I mean, it's sure. got to be an adventure <laughs> sometimes. Do you find that you draw strengths from some of the stories of your people before you in terms of keeping you grounded to who you are? I think in general, I think my family um, has always kept me very grounded. You know, dancing with my, when I think back, people ask me like, when did I start dancing? Yeah. And it was always in the living room with my family. And I old home videos and I'm always moving around and, and it connected <laughs> us so much um, as, a, as a family. And you know, when I come back, when I visit my dad or I come back to Utah and I go you know, for, home for Christmas, it is a time for me that grounds me very, very much. And it just sort of reminds me sort of where I'm from and the importance uh, and, and, and just in life in general, I feel like, you know, I think especially being an entertainer, it can right. often become about me. Well, it's, and it does for a lot of entertainers. Right, right. And, 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 and it's sort of reminding yourself that it's about we. It really is. And it's about, you know, the secret to living is giving. It really, and when I sort of made that transition, you know, for what wasn't about being the best or being champion, and I, it's all about yeah. me, um, when I changed that, it, it, it certainly gives you a more sustainable fuel Yes, yeah, for, that's for right. Because when you when when you have those down times, yeah, I mean every career in entertainment has a period, sure, you know that you have to recover from at some point, and that's got to be really tough on the psyche. Yeah, to have that you know that well-grounded family background and know that others have done it, you yeah. can do it too. Sure, yeah, you know, Get through the whole thing. Well, we hope you have a great performance tonight here thanks. at Roots Tech. Thank you. Have a great time. Yeah, Derek Huff, thanks for joining thanks us. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. It's good to see you. Thanks, mate. So do I have the coolest job in the world or what to get to talk to these people? Good stuff. Thanks so much to Derek Huff for coming on. And we're going to have more guests who are keynote speakers at Roots Tech coming up in the next few weeks as well on Extreme Genes. So stick around for that. And don't forget, coming up in October, Roots Tech heads to London. It's going to be fantastic. And for those of you who listen to Extreme Genes across the pond, that might be a simpler way for you to take advantage of all that Roots Tech has to offer. It's going to be a lot of fun. And it's the first time. How cool is that? Well, season five of BYU TV's Relative Race is on again and four weeks in the books. And I've got a member of Team Red on the line with me right now. She is Maria from New York City. And uh, Maria, you were adopted. You've got an adopted sister, Liz, who is your traveling companion in this great adventure on Relative Race Sunday nights at 9 Eastern, 6 o'clock Pacific. How's the experience going so far? Oh, my goodness. It is one of the most amazing experiences. My sister and I are so thankful for the show, though, just because I've never found my birth parents. And if it wasn't for the show, it wouldn't have been possible to find the people I would have found and to experience the race and everything that comes with it on top of that, which you don't realize is very stressful <laughs> and very crazy. 
because you think, you know, oh, you're just running around, you're driving, and then you go meet this family. No, it's not like that at all. Like, it's a lot of stress. You don't know where you're going at all any mornings. You get a text, and then you just have to drive. But, like, we don't know which direction we're going in. Yeah. Every night, I would map it out because I've watched other seasons. So I would tell Lizzie, like, okay, this is what we have to do. We have to grab this map, this map, and this map because we're only going to probably drive, (laughs) what, four, five, six hours. So these are the directions we could possibly go. So there's a lot that goes more into it. That's, like, a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. And I wish they could definitely show that because Lizzie and I kept just saying after the show, we're going to need therapy. We're going to need. Oh, gosh. It now, was wait a, a minute. Lot. Wait a minute. You guys are both from New York City. So having uh, driven there many, many times, I know that you like to put your pedal to the metal and you're not allowed to do that in the show or you can actually be removed from the show. That must have been just about impossible for you. That was pretty impossible, especially because I might have a slight case of road rage to- <laughs> so, you know, when you're in a rush and you're going somewhere, but then you don't know where you're going at the same time, it's hard to rush and, like, get somewhere when you right. don't know what you're doing, where you're going. You don't want to miss a turn. In the first few episodes of the show, what would you say was your most emotional moment? Uh, in the first two episodes, definitely meeting Adeo was the most emotional because not only did we thought maybe he could be an uncle or something, I thought about, yeah, I could probably have brothers and sisters, but... I didn't know who the show would pull out, who would pop out behind those doors. So, like, that was very emotional, very amazing, emotional, crazy, like, all at the same time. And then to find out he's one of ten. I could not believe (laughs) my birth mother. She is superwoman. Like, what? Yeah. That is insane. I literally asked him, I was like, wait, do you have all the same parents? Like, there's no way. Wow. And it was so crazy. And, and then, your picture that he put in there with all the others, all in red, it was just the most amazing thing. Uh, that was even freakier. My sister made the observation that they were in red shirts. So I immediately look at a day on. I'm like, did you plan this? Like, did the, did the producers <laughs> tell you to do this? Like, For team what, red, what happened? Yeah. And they said no. And then it's funny. I had got actually in contact with an aunt on their side. And she was telling me that they always used to dress up when they were younger and stuff. And, you know, since there were 10 of them, it was easier for my birth mother, Sharon, to have them all in the same color to find them whenever they went on trips and stuff or where they just went on outings. Wow. So I was like, oh, okay. Did you find that your perspective on the program changed from maybe that $50,000 big payoff to something entirely different as the show went on? My sister and I, we totally forgot about the money aspect of it all. We're both competitors, so just winning and the race part, like finishing each day one at a time, was what our focus was on, because you can't just get to the end. She's Maria from Team Red on Relative (laughs) Race on BYU-TV. It's Season 5 going on right now. Catch it every Sunday night, 9 o'clock Eastern, 6 o'clock Pacific. Thanks so much, Maria. Appreciate your time, and good luck to you. Thank you. We'll see what happens. (laughs) Yes, stay tuned. Time to talk preservation with our good friend Tom Perry from TransferDuplication.com. And, Tom, boy, there's a lot going on right now in the Midwest. We talked some about it last week and about, obviously, this is a great reason for a lot of people to do a lot of scanning and digitizing. But right now, there are more immediate issues relating to, like, what happened in Nebraska. Oh, absolutely. This is a time when you can't take the time to get your scanner out and do these different things. You've got so many things going on right now. 
what your number one concern is, is to stop mold growth and stop photos sticking to each other. So it's something you need to do quick, fast, and do it right now, and then worry about the scanning and everything else later. Yeah, you think about what's going on. I mean, this can lead not only to mold, but to the bugs, and obviously you're going to have water damage. I've gone through water damage on personal photos and, and items, and it's really, it's devastating. It took me a long, long time to get over some of the things I lost in a flood once back in uh, 2001. So there are places, though, people can go to get advice when it comes to some of this stuff. We have a lot of things on ExtremeGenes.com where you can look up past podcasts that we've talked about these things. Also, if you need to call somebody, you want a professional conservator to help you, you can go to culturalheritage.org, type in your zip code, and they'll tell you who's the closest. So, for instance, in the Midwest, I know there's some people in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There's people in Overland Park City. A lot of these people travel, so you need to get a hold of them if it's something out of your wheelhouse and you feel uncomfortable doing. But the first thing you need to do before you call anybody is try to stop the mold growth. And you even talked about insects. Mosquitoes come out so bad right now, and they lay larvae. And if the larvae gets on your photographs and your negatives and then dries up, it's going to be almost impossible to get them off. A lot of Photoshop redoing if you do that. Well, and of course, there's all kinds of stuff that can get into the water that actually damages your photos and leaves dirt on them as well as the mold. So when you go through all this and you think about the impact of it, I think obviously you can replace certain things, but photographs and audio tapes and home movies and home videos, those things are practically irreplaceable. Absolutely. And that's why you want to work immediately. If you have the time, get some distilled water. If you can't get distilled water, get clean water and somehow, you know, rinse them off softly. Don't just pour it on, put them in like a tub of water and kind of soak them through that. If they're photographs, make sure you put something between them like glass or something that's going to keep them from sticking to each other or polyester or lay them out flat so they can dry. Even if they curl, you're going to be able to get in and do something later. If you don't have time to do that, you want to stop them how they are. And I prefer refrigeration. If you can't do that, freezing is a good way to do it. And it can damage sometimes, but it's not going to be as bad as the mold. So get them in like one of those footlocker type freezers that are very inexpensive and just put them in there and freeze them. Even if you have an old one that doesn't work, if you can get it somewhere where it's not right in the hot sun, put them in there, shut it up. At least that's going to keep insects and bugs and things like that from going into it. Get long grain rice, put it in a cheesecloth, tight with cloth, put it inside your freezer, in your bag, wherever you're storing these things to absorb the moisture. But the biggest thing is you want to suspend them right now so they don't get any worse. Yeah, and, and I will add to this, too, that I was able to actually restore many of my water-damaged items years ago when I learned that there were machines in these craft shops where it can relax the paper, and then they can actually attach it using acid-free glue to foam core. And that has made a huge difference for me. In fact, some of them came out better than they were before the water damage. So it's a lot to think about. And, Tom, once again, that site is culturalheritage.org, right? Correct. All right. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again next week. My pleasure. Oh, I got to tell you, sometimes I wish the show could go three hours. I mean, there is so much ground to cover. If you missed any of it, make sure you catch the podcast on iHeartRadio, ExtremeGenes.com, and iTunes. And don't forget to sign up for our weekly Genie newsletter. It is absolutely free. We give you a blog each week, a couple of links to past and present shows, and links to stories we know you'll be interested in. Talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. 
This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.